And if you would turn to the book of 2 Kings and chapter 6. Our text this morning is another large chunk of narrative from chapter 6, verse 1 through to verse 23. So rather than read it all in one section, as we come to each appropriate section, we'll look at the text that we have. But let us now ask for God's blessing upon the preaching of His Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we pray that You would attend our way with power, with the might of Your Spirit. Lord, we ask that You would convict us of our sin, that You would encourage us on to love and to good deeds, that You would equip us for service in Your kingdom. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of walking around with your eyes closed? Well, maybe it was physically, you know, especially as kids. We tend to play that game where we walk around the house, pretend we're sleepwalking, walk around with our eyes closed, pretending, you know, that we don't know where things are to bump into things. And inevitably, after a few minutes or a couple of close calls, a parent will say, hey, open your eyes. You're not asleep. Or maybe it happened when you were taking an exam at college or at graduate school. You're working through a long problem. You're just about done, and you realize you have done it completely wrong. Your eyes have been opened to the true problem, and you either scratch it out or erase furiously and start back from the beginning. Your eyes have been opened. Or maybe finally it's been an experience you've had that's been of a more frightening nature. You get out of the car and you realize how close you came to a bad accident. And your eyes are opened to the situation that was before you. Well, these things don't just happen to children who play or to people who avoid accidents or those who scramble to get an exam done. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. It is a challenge of faith that we are to open our eyes to the work of the Lord in our midst every single day. In the big things of life and in the small things of life. I'm reminded of one of my favorite commercials of youth. It was a plumbing company called Father and Son. And one of their jingles was, No job too big, no job too small. We're father and son. We do it all. And that would be in a sanctified fashion. A jingle for God. For there is no job too large for Him to handle and no job too small, but that He gives it His tender care. And so that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at what seem to be two very different types of stories. One man and the loss of a tool and armies and kings. Well, let's dive in then and look at the first part of chapter 6 as we look at the first seven verses. And let... Let us allow our eyes to be opened. Let our prayer be, Open my eyes, Lord, first to your care. Open my eyes, Lord, to your care. And then we will ask that our eyes will be opened to your protection. And then finally, to your mercy. 
God's care, God's protection, and God's mercy. Look with me then at the beginning of chapter 6. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log. And let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, Alas, my master! It was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. It's an interesting story, isn't it? Especially perhaps for those of us who aren't very handy, who would be afraid to use an axe for fear of cutting off more fingers than wood. And what is God trying to tell us through this little vignette? I think first, He's trying to open our eyes to His care by making us understand our own need. To understand our need. What do I mean by that? We look at this section and maybe our first reaction is, this isn't important enough to be in the Bible. Okay, so it shows that Elisha can do fantastic things, but after all, it's just an axe head. Why doesn't he go down to Lowe's and get another one? What's really the big deal? But the first thing that you should be reminded of this is that most of the needs of the church are small. Even needs that are big to individuals are small in the grand scheme of life. We may tend to think even that our small needs pass God's attention. That He's busy with big things like revivals in Africa or moving nations, or trying to uh, see that His will is done through the government. God is concerned with the big things of life, but really, in reality, God is concerned with all of the little things. Do not mistake God's greatness for bigness. Do you understand the difference? God is great, but that doesn't mean that He is big and beyond anything that can has a care or a concern for us. If we think about it in this season, is that not, after all, perhaps the main point of the Incarnation? That God's greatness is contained in a small baby. It is manifested in a man. He who created the universe came to live in space and in time. Most of the needs of the church are small, just like this fellow's. It may seem small in the grand scheme of things, but it's very large to this particular man. You see, he wouldn't just be able to go down to Lowe's and buy another axe. Not because Lowe's doesn't exist, but because it would be impossible for him. You see, we're in a time in which the Iron Age is really just beginning. And iron implements are very rare. Very expensive. So when this man loses this axe head, he's not thinking, I'm out a $20 bill. He's thinking, I'm probably going to be an indentured slave for months, maybe years, to pay off this tool. What do I do, Elisha? 
Alas, it was borrowed. It would be very similar to going out to a friend, a neighbor, or your boss and borrowing his sports car and wrecking it. You wouldn't just go down to Lowe's and get another one of those. You would say, oh no, it was borrowed. I don't have insurance for that. And I don't have $30,000. It's an immediate need that is big. That has application to us. Because you see, oftentimes, we look upon others' needs as small. Well, so their back hurts a little bit. They should get over it. Well, you know, so they're having difficulty with their finances. They'll make it through. Stop whining. Well, you know, and we denigrate others' needs. Something we would never do when it comes to ourselves. This is an opportunity for us to minister to others. Because this need is real. There are real needs in the church, big and small. And when we understand our need, then we can truly understand God's provision. Because God does provide here in this instance. Note that first He provides for His people. This is something that He has done for the sons of the prophets. And this is, if we think about it, in line with many other stories. You can flip in your Bible back to chapter 4. And you'll see all of these other miracles that he did for the widow of a son of the prophets, for a bunch of son of the prophets around a meal, for someone who helped a prophet. This is something that God does. He takes a special care for his church. That should be of great comfort to you. May your eyes be opened right now to the fact that God sees your concerns, whether they are big, small, or medium. He is aware of the difficulties in your life. And He provides for His people. As a matter of fact, this story itself is a provision for His people. Because this book was written for the exiles who were in Babylon. And they would hear this story and see the care and comfort for God. And in the midst of their difficulties, they would know that they had not been abandoned. They were not left to their own devices. But that God had His special care for them. Do you feel abandoned sometimes? Do you feel without hope in a certain situation? Then this story of the axe head should bring hope to you. Because God provides for His people and He provides for them in His providence. Notice how all of the small details here are worked out ahead of time. It just happens that this son of a prophet asked Elisha to go with them. What a coincidence! And it just happens that Elisha says, Sure, I'm not busy. What would happen if Elisha were not there? The axe head would be lost. Who is governing all his creatures and all their actions in the midst of this? The living God. You see, God is so concerned with the lives of his people that he oversees little things like who goes off on a woodcutting party. This is God's special care for His church. Does this cause you perhaps to rethink life today? What brought you here today, to this place, to hear this word of God? Was it a whim? Was it coincidence? Was it luck? No. You are here today to hear this word of God because of the providence of God. 
to hear that God redeems, even in this instance of the axe head, that which is lost in a sinful, destructive world is restored by God. This is but a small picture of what God does in His church and in His kingdom. It's a small picture of the gospel. You might even say to yourself, if God didn't let this man lose an axe, how could he possibly lose me? I'm safe and secure with this providential God. This is the care of a loving God. And then our story changes to a bit more of the national scene. The same man, Elisha, goes about his business. The axe head is dried off. Everyone's happy. They're having a good meal. And there are difficulties that happen now in the kingdom of Israel. Look with me at verse 8. Once when the king of Israel was war, king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike them with blindness. So now we have a different story. There is at least one relation. You may have seen it in the question. Oh, Master, what do we do now? We haven't just lost a tool. There's an army out to get us. God wants to show us His protection of His church, of His people, of you and me through this story. And the first thing that we see in this is the all-seeing God. The all-seeing God. This is a story that comes up in which times have changed. Israel and Syria are now back at war again. You may remember there was peace after Naaman was healed. The Syrians stopped coming in on raids. But now war is back front and center. And it's more vicious than ever. Now there are not just raids. Armies are coming in seeking to destroy the king of Israel and his army. 
Israel's army is obviously not a match for Syria's because their best plan is to find out where the Syrians are going to be and to not be there. It's not a very good offensive military strategy to simply avoid the enemy as long as possible. So you need to get that picture that Israel is in very dire straits here. They're almost like a man who perhaps, I don't know, had lost an axe and couldn't pay for it. It's an impossible task. Now, the question then would come to you, is this perhaps not what happens in Israel, but maybe this is the way you view the evening news. You know that you're no match for circumstances. Are all of the car companies going to fold? What does that mean? Will unemployment go up to 15%? Will oil go down to $20 a barrel? Will we lose our jobs? Will we lose our 401ks? Will enemies attack? Will terrorists come in? Perhaps you look at the news and you feel very weak, very unable to handle events. Israel was unable, but they have a source of help. It's what we might call uncanny if we did not know who was behind it. Over and over again, the Bible puts it in an almost humorous fashion, more than once or twice. You can imagine the Syrian king saying, let's go over there and destroy them there. And the report back is, they weren't there. Okay, go over there and destroy them. Uh, they weren't there either. Okay, go over there and get them. Um, they still weren't there. You can almost imagine this game of cat and mouse going on for time after time after time. So much so that the king brings his people together and he says, Okay, guys, why don't you tell me who here is on the king of Israel's payroll? The question actually could be even phrased a little bit different in the same sarcastic way. The king would say, Okay, is there anybody here who is against the king of Israel? It seems like everybody here is on his payroll. And one perhaps very brave man speaks up against the king and he says, well, your highness, I'd really like to keep my head, but I want to tell you that it's really not us. It's this man called Elisha. He tells the king of Israel everything that you're doing. Who is this Elisha? Well, you see, he's something between a cross between George Patton and James Bond. You know how James Bond goes out by himself? He's a one-man intelligence crew, and he saves the day all by himself? That's Elisha here. He doesn't need a secret service. He is the secret service. Everything that the king of Syria knows and says is passed on. So then how does the king of Syria react? Well, he comes up with a plan. Well, if Elisha knows where we're going to be all the time, you find out where he is, and we'll send an army to destroy him. Now, wait a minute. You mean the problem is this guy knows where we're going to attack every time and our solution is to attack him. Won't he know that we're going to attack him before we attack him? Isn't that what he does? <laughs> it's a completely foolish plan. But don't fault the king of Syria because he's not used to this. You see, his gods, his idols don't do things like this. They don't have any real power. They don't have ears that can hear. They don't have mouths that can speak. He's new to this. He doesn't understand what it's like to serve the living God. 
This tells us that no one can be harmed, no one of the people of God can be harmed outside of the will of God. Do you understand that? That's a very comforting thing, but in a sense, it's a very frightening thing. We think that the bad things that happen to us, we think that maybe we would feel better if the reason that we got sick or the reason that we got in an accident, or the reason our marriage is in trouble is because God happened to be busy someplace else. And our hope is that He will come back, rectify His mistake, and things will get better for us. But you see, in reality, God is aware of and protects His people, but He has a purpose even in the difficulties that He sends to us. You see, God is not about to make us feel happy. God wants us to trust, even in the midst of our difficulties, even in the midst of the sorrows that He sends to us, it's a powerful spur to trust and faith, to know that even in sorrow and sin, God watches over us. He sees everything. He sees everything. But He is also unseen. He is the unseen God. Because as this army rolls out, thinking it is going to surprise Elisha at Dothan, Elisha sends his servant out in the morning. Now we know from this that it's very likely that Elisha knows exactly what's going on. He's not caught by surprise. He didn't just forget the skedaddle out of Dothan. But his servant is not as aware. His servant does not have his eyes open to what God is doing. He walks out and he sees a big bad army. And he says, we're in a lot of trouble here, Master. They've surrounded us and they are a huge army with horses, with chariots. You could almost sense the fear and the hopelessness in his voice. Alas, my Master, what shall we do? The city is surrounded. There is no escape. Maybe you feel like that at times. Maybe that comes to you at night when you're alone. The fear grips your heart that you can't fix your parents. That you can't keep your adult children on the right path. That you're not sure you'll be able to make that next mortgage payment. Fear and hopelessness can grip you especially as we look at our circumstances. They can be pretty bleak, can't they? And so what does Elisha do? Does he come out and give a good pep talk? Does he say, well, you know, if you really just believe hard enough in yourself, if you really just express it, God will do it. Right? No. He comes, and he comes with a prayer. He doesn't actually even direct himself to the servant. He says, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. He says, Don't be afraid, servant. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. He's reminding the servant of the reality of life. Something that we need to be reminded of daily as we look at hard circumstances. I want you to notice it's a two-part, it's a two-pronged attack. The first thing he's He tells him what the reality of the situation is. Don't worry. There's more of us than there is of them. You can imagine the servant. Um, 
You haven't quite wiped the sleep out of your eyes, uh, man of God. There's a whole lot of them. And there's you and me, and maybe we can scrounge up the baker's boy, but there's really not that many of us. So Elisha goes to the next step then. He doesn't just tell him the truth. He shows him the truth through the Lord. And he shows it to him in an understandable way. Now, you need to see how God condescends to help us here. He doesn't just know that God is more powerful than the Syrians. He shows it to him in a fashion that would immediately make sense. A large, humongous army of flaming horses and chariots. And now the circumstances seem completely different. Well, of course there's more of us than of them. Oh, that's what you meant when God was protecting us. Oh, now I see. And you can almost imagine he calms down, right? But the challenge for you and for me is not in the easy task when God tells us the truth and then shows us the truth. The challenge is when he tells it to us and he withholds the vision. When he gives you verse 16, but does not give you verse 17. That is the real challenge. Because you must trust in him. You must know that he is in charge, that he is protecting, even if you don't see the horses and the chariots. Sometimes God shows you that after the fashion. One example of that, a a very earthly illustration is the frustration that we had with respect to getting our, per, our easement for, from the mud district to have utilities on our property. And we got to a point that I think collectively, Steve and I had no hair from pulling out our hair from trying to get this thing done, month after month after month after month. Now, unbeknownst to us, the Lord was working it so that when it was finally done, Our interest rate chart that was very well prepared and precise in its Excel spreadsheet, we had to make a change to it. We had to take out 7.5% and we had to put in 5.5%. Now, out of loan for a building, that's a pretty good number. Now, at the beginning of the day, we could not think of any good reason why we should be delayed. As a matter of fact, the people that we were talking to, they couldn't think of a good reason either. But God was in it. Now, maybe your example is in a mud district. Maybe it's something like a plane you didn't get on. Or a struggle that you had with your children that at the end of the struggle brought you closer to them. The challenge to us is to rest in verse 16, even if we don't see verse 17. Now, God has protected them He's opened their eyes to his protection, but you will notice that the attack still comes. That's not the end of the story. Because in verse 18, the Syrians come down against him. And Elisha prays to the Lord and says, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way. This is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. 
As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with the sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. The attack comes. They know the protection is there, but that doesn't stop the attack. Because God wants to now open their eyes to his mercy. First, this mercy comes and it is unexpected. If you think about it, God acts not how we would, or not even perhaps how we would expect him to. You see, we look out and we see the small army, and then we see the bigger army with all the flaming horses and chariots, and we think it is going to be a bloodbath. This is going to be like a scene from Braveheart. All these flaming horses and chariots are going to swoop down and wipe out the Syrian army. And that's how God's going to save Israel. But God doesn't do that, does he? God sends one man out to meet this army. And he strikes them with blindness. Now, this seems unthinkable, unexpected, unusual to us. And I would put it to you that this is often the case of much of our frustration with God's providence. It's that God doesn't act the way we think he should act. And we get frustrated with it. Because we don't think he knows what he's doing. We may not verbalize that, but in our hearts we grumble. That's the story of 40 years in the wilderness. The people of Israel thinking that God couldn't get his act together. And so God brings Elisha and he blinds them. Now there's an irony here. Because they can't see anyway. They don't know who God is. They don't know there's a big army of flaming chariots and horses out there. They're pretty much blind to start with. But this kind of blindness is a judicial blindness. This blindness is only used one other place in the scriptures. It's in another famous passage in Genesis 19. It describes the blindness that God struck the Sodomites with as they attempted to get into Lot's house. And if you remember that story, they fumbled around, groped at the door, didn't know what to do. Because you see, this is not just a physical blindness that they can't see. This is a confusion of mind. They are not in their right mind. As a matter of fact, they are so confused that Elisha can walk up and go, you know, you're in the wrong city. And they say, ooh, we must be in the wrong city. It's almost like that famous scene in Star Wars where Obi-Wan comes up and he says, these aren't the droids you're looking for. And they say, these aren't the droids we're looking for. Why don't you move along? Let's move along. And they march 12 miles up north to the plain of Samaria. And then when they're thought to see they're in the worst possible place that you could be. God has worked all the circumstances to protect his people. God has defeated an army and shown that he is mighty. Should this surprise you? It shouldn't. Because that's who our God is. Our God is a mighty warrior. He doesn't need to test himself with spear or sword or bow. If you turn back in your bulletin to our call to worship, 
one of the most famous passages, especially in this season, Isaiah 9, 6. Who is Jesus Christ? He is Wonderful Counselor. He is Everlasting Father. He is Prince of Peace. But He is also Mighty God. Do you know how you say that in Hebrew? Warrior God. The word for warrior and for mighty man are the same word. That's who Jesus Christ is. He is the mighty man of God. It's why Jesus can give us a promise that John says in 1 John 4 that we have overcome the world, Christian, because greater is He who is in you than He who is against you in the world. This same type of protection and power and mercy and deliverance is present today in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of the armies that oppose you, all of the dragons that come up against you, all of the impossible odds find their answer in Jesus Christ. Now, the deliverance may not be how you think it is or how it should be. But the deliverance will come. And that if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be in His presence for all eternity, blessed child of God. Isn't that better than another ten grand in the bank? Or an extra five or six years of life on earth? The deliverance is found in the power of Jesus Christ. Then our story ends not just with an unexpected mercy, but with something to make us even more uncomfortable. With an undeserved mercy. Because this Syrian army that shows up in the middle, you know, it's like a movie. They show up, and they wake up, and they can see, and they're surrounded by the Israelites, everybody pointing their gun at them. Whoa. We're cooked now. And the king of Israel is so enthusiastic about it, he repeats himself. He's stammering. Should we kill him now, Elisha? Should should we kill him now? Let's strike him down right now. Come on, come on. Can we? Can we? And Elisha just looks at him and he says, Is that what you would do with those that you took with the sword or the bow? If God wanted to strike them down, he could have struck them down outside Dothan. God's got a bigger work in mind here. You see, we're expecting a bloodbath. And what do we get? If we think about it, what we get is Psalm 23. I prepare a table for you in the presence of my enemies. What we get is Romans chapter 12 and verse 20, where Paul writes, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. You see, that is the way of the cross. To seek mercy. To show mercy even to those who reject it because in their rejection, they prove that they are not of God and that they are deserving of all the punishment that God is bringing to them. They can't escape eternal punishment here. (coughs) But God yet again puts out a hand showing mercy. You see, where we would expect justice, He extends mercy. And don't let the fact that you know these Syrians don't deserve it hide from you that you don't deserve it. And I don't deserve it. What you deserve is death and hell. And so do I. But God doesn't give us justice. 
He extends the hand of mercy. Do you see how the Lord works? He opens our eyes to His mercy. And in this story, we see that mercy is not just for those who are churchy, not just for those who have the perfect Christmas dress or the best tie. Mercy comes to all. It comes to the Jew first and to the Gentile also. Mercy must be grasped by faith, but it comes to us. You see, the Syrians had an opportunity here to see that they too were under the protection of the living God. Now, from everything we know about this story, they rejected that. And they continued upon their ways of idolatry, just even as the king of Israel did. Good intentions will not save them. But that offer of mercy is laid out before them because God saves whom He will, not whom we think worthy. One of the commentators on this has a good line that I will use in conclusion. He says, you know, it might even make us think of changing a hymn and to change a line to a hymn to, Come ye Syrians, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sore. Is that how you feel sometimes? Weak and wounded, wretched, sore? Know that God wants your eyes to be open to His singular care, His divine providence and protection, and His great and abundant mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, Your Word that You have brought to us by Your servant. Lord, we thank You for Elisha, And we thank you for the way in which we have seen him be magnificent in your service, only by your power. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might see your guidance, your care. We ask, Lord, that you might open our eyes, that we might see Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Now hear this blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who knows all your trials, fears, and difficulties, and the love of the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, who dwells among you even now, be with you now and forever. Amen.